Hello, this is Black Country Blokes Tune the Fat. Listen, listen, listen. I've been hearing a lot lately about men don't talk. But in my experience, men do talk, just people aren't listening. So it's going to be me and a group of blokes discussing our struggles and victories through life. Warning, there may be some bad language, so apologies to all the mums, especially on my own. Let's get going. Listen, listen, listen. Hi, This is the Black Country Blokes tuning the fat with me, Kev Dillon. And today we're joined by Paul Boggy. Now, Paul Boggy is an ex-squaddy who's had his uh, troubles and battles with heroin. Thank goodness he's clean now. And he's come up with this book, From Heroin to Hero. So, Paul, thank you ever so much for coming on all the way from sunny Scotland. So, could you tell us a bit about your life? Hello everyone, thanks Kev, thanks for having me on. Um, so yeah, I'm Paul Bogey from Scotland, I'm originally from Edinburgh. Um, at the age of 18, I became addicted to heroin. Um, it took seven years of my life and I managed to clean myself up at the age of 25. Then after a few years of rehabilitation, um, I started boxing and then started running, started training in the gym as my new addiction. I got extremely fit and you know, one day I decided to join the army and become a guardsman in the Scots Guards. Um, we are, you know, standing outside Buckingham Palace with my red tunic and my bare skin, um, guarding the Queen, you know. So, in a nutshell, um, that is me, and that's my, my life, and that's the story. There is obviously a lot more to it, but in a nutshell, that's me. Because we were saying off camera, saying, because my first question to you was like, were you, um, did you do your service and then get onto heroin? You said, no, unlike so many people who've come back with PTSD, you did it in reverse. Yeah. So it is, it is quite unique. Um, the fact that I've had that battle with that drug and, you know, managed to turn it around to go on and do a job like what I've done. Um, unfortunately, there are so many veterans who, after leaving the forces, through things that have happened in Afghanistan or, or overseas, or they have this, this, this traumatic life that they turn to alcohol or drugs as a way, as a coping mechanism, um, you know. So yeah, it's as unique. I would agree with that. I've not. Most people that I speak to um, have has happened to them that way. They've had a life in the army and then they've been medically discharged or just discharged themselves. And before long, they've alcohol. Um, more than heroin, certainly for the people that I've spoke to, alcohol seems to be um, a big one, you know, a major one, certainly in amongst the veterans. Um, and just because alcohol is legal um, doesn't mean that it's, it's, it's a devastating drug. More so than heroin, I would say, in my opinion. Um, I, I've, I've seen so many people's lives destroyed by alcohol. Um more so than heroin, you know? I've, I've, 
because like sorry to interrupt you, but I think there's not enough help for when you squaddies finish doing the thing. They they turn these young men into machines and then they don't turn the machine back into a normal man. And I think the, the transition from going a guy off the street to a guy above uh, overseas and then coming back to the real world, that's it's so mind boggling for these young men and women, isn't it? Yeah. When I when I joined the Scottish Guards, I was thirty, and I had led a life prior. Obviously, a, a large part of that was on 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 drugs. Um, but when I got into basic training, they were talking about breaking down. We're going to break everybody down, and we're going to build you back up to be guardsmen. Um, and what the signals went. It's there. You still there? Yeah, I'm still there, mate. Oh, the pictures went, right. Um, yeah, so when I when I started on in basic training, the that was what we were told that they were going to break everyone down and then build them back up to be guardsmen. Um and they do that and they do a they do a great a great job at it. But like you you mentioned there that once once they leave, um, you're forgotten, and it's such a shame that there are so many veterans, um, certainly on the streets, sleeping rough. Um, I just find it heartbreaking, and these people are not given the tools and they're not given the support um, that they need to be able to function in society. Not even close. Not even close. So, yeah, I'm going to say something before, and this is going to sound a bit, this might get people's feathers up. But one thing, do you feel like you benefit because you went in as a man at 30 instead of going in as, you know, let's face it, a child at like 18? And the other thing, and this is the controversial bit, because you'd overcome something as life changing as heroin and you'd got the strength to overcome it, do you think that give you the strength to deal with the army? knowing that you can overcome these physical, you know, physical addictions. Yeah, and I I remember speaking to one of the sergeants when I was in basic training in the first few weeks when that was mentioned about this whole breaking, breaking these young men down and building them back up. And I remember saying, um, you're going to have a hard time breaking me down because my mindset I'm in a, you know, the mindset that I've got now, um, I'll not really be broken because my mind has been broken my whole life. And now that I've realised how to fix myself, I'm not going to allow anybody to break me down again. But, you know, and I said I'll be respectful, you know, and everything that I'll do, I'll I'll do the way that you, you teach me to do it. But as, as far as breaking me down mentally, you're going to have a hard time. So I would suggest no bothering. And then, you know, he was just laughing. It was, it was, a, it was a nice conversation. I wasn't, a, you know, and he was like, well, we'll see, we'll see, Bogey, we'll see. Um, and it turned out to be the case that they couldn't break me down um, the way that they were breaking down these 17, 18, 19-year-old boys. Um, but, yeah, certainly... The life that I led prior made me headstrong enough 
to be able to cope with um, basic training and just being a soldier. It allowed me to, you know, it allowed me to cope with that so much easier, I reckon. What do you think, like, if they move, like, not say move the age up, but if we could get, like, some more mature soldiers from there who have had them large skills, because at 17, 18, the world's such a new, exciting, wonderful, perfect place. When you've, when you've grown up a bit and you can go, oh, hang on, do I actually want to be here? Do you think that might be something? When I, I was 30, when I was joining, I joined the Scots Scarves, but the, the age used to be 27. And when I went to the Army Recruitment Office in Edinburgh, and I walked in, and I told them my age. Then they informed me that the age is 32. It had just been moved to 32. And I remember doing a physical test in about week week six of basic training. It was a loaded march with all your weight on the back, your rifle, your boots on. And I think it was a four or five mile loaded march that we'd done. There was 40 men. We all went out over the four or five miles. And the officers and the sergeant majors were at the finish line, all waiting on the guys coming in. Um, the boy in front of me was um, 29. I was 30. And I think the boy who came in fourth, he was in his late 20s as well. And I remember having a discussion, or them having a discussion when we were all standing there, um, sort of taking the piss a little bit, saying, look, all the granddads are in first. How is that even possible? And then, and then the officers are saying, well, it just goes to show that if you're dedicated enough um, with your fitness and you keep up the fitness and you've got the heart, then it can be done. You know, and it, it was, it's true. You know, I Prior, prior to me joining the army, I was properly shitting myself because there was like, right, 18, 19 year old, they're going to be super fit. They're going to run rings around me. So I was really anxious. So I trained extra hard on the months running up to going to Cataract to do my basic training. Um, and within the first few days, I realised that I was in the first few for all the physical tests that we were doing. Um, and, I, you know, I was the oldest man. I was older I was older than the officers. I was older than the sergeant major. I was older than the sergeants. And I was older than all the corporals. I was the oldest man out of about 40 men. Um, and I was running rings around the young ones. So, definitely, definitely. Uh, I, think that our... comes to like, I think that comes to like the difference between mental health and mental strength because even though like sometimes you can have mental ill health but if you're mentally strong in these situations where you're thinking i've got to be mentally tougher than this young joey who might run rings around me but i'm gonna get there despite of everything yeah 100 percent, and i think that um it, it turned out to be the case that like we i don't know if it was you know these young men that were joining the army. I don't, I'm just assuming that they hadn't done much training on the lead up to starting basic training. 
some of them turned out to be um, to get themselves relatively fit by the end. But that's only because of the robustness of the basic training. You're at it every day. Um, you don't have an option. You know, if, if, if you're given an option um, to train every day and do the things that you get put through in basic training, um, if, you have, if you have the option not to do that, to go and sit on the Xbox instead or just give it a miss today, if you had that option, then I think a lot of the young ones would probably have chose to go and sit on the Xbox or the PlayStation and take a few days off here and there. Um, you know, because they weren't because they, they never had that option, they ended up getting extremely fit by the end. And I, I then struggled. I was still fitter than them. Don't get me wrong, Kev. I was still fitter. Um, you know, but they were catching me up by the, the end of the six months. They were starting to catch me up. Um, but it is, it's a mental, it's a mental, um, it's a mental thing that you have to be. You have to be dedicated, I think. I think that's what, what we've got to do in life, is back ourselves to the 100 and have that mental belief, not arrogance, because no one likes anyone who's arrogant, but that self-belief, which is confidence. And that's going to, I'm going to just flip it back to, what was the catalyst uh, to come off the gear, to realise there you are, seven years into it, and what was it that made you quit and become the man that you are now? So I'd, I'd relapsed 12 or 13 times. I tried to come off the drug so many times. I promised all my family and friends I meant it 100%. For the bottom of my heart, I meant it. Um, and I struggled so bad that, you know, I'd, I'd given up on life. I became depressed. I became suicidal. Suicidal thoughts every day. And I just really had given up. Then I seeked help. The first few drug counsellors that I seeked help from um, had literally read it from a book about detox and I couldn't relate to them. I couldn't, my mind just wouldn't allow me to listen to what they were telling me um, how to get clean, how to stop taking heroin. And I was sitting looking at them and I was thinking, you know, sitting there with their, their suit and their tie. Um, no disrespect to them, but you know I just couldn't relate. And I met someone, a drug counsellor, who had been eight years of off heroin, and I couldn't believe it that he was still alive. Then that was when that there was a seed planted that day um, that it was a possibility. I still wasn't ready myself. I took heroin for many years after that first. Um, the first time I met I met him, took heroin for many years after. Um, but as things started to get really bad, I seeked help. I was accepted on a course, and it's through Cyrenians. It's a charity up in Edinburgh in Scotland. Um, and I went and done this course, and this course was nothing to do with addiction. It was to do with the mind. And how the mind works. It was American. There was an American professor called Lou Tice, and he. We got this folder called the Breakthrough to Excellence, and 
basically for a week, it was like a classroom atmosphere. And for a week, we just sat and learned about our minds, the power of our mind, the power of choice, um, the fact that everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly in your life is a choice. Everything that you've done, everything you choose to do from this point forward is a choice. And I didn't believe that when I was, for that week, I didn't believe it. I was trying to deflect information, so I thought. Then a few months later, um, you know, I'd been seven years on heroin, all other drugs, uh, methadone, antidepressants, Valium, cannabis, codeine, tramadols, everything. And I, a few months after doing that course, I woke up and something was different. And the only reason that I was able to kick my heroin addiction was through understanding and believing that the choice that I make not to take heroin, you know, is solely my choice. That's That was 16 and a half years ago, the last time that I ever touched heroin. And, you know, it's testimony to, like, to this day that it is a choice. It's a choice for everyone. Um, but you have to want it. You have okay. to want it enough, and you have to be ready. Um, you know, and I, I'm finding that with my support group is that some people are just not ready. So, well, that's what I wanted to jump in and say, Paul, because anyone who knows anything about addiction, or if you're living with someone who is addicted to something big, booze, heroin, crack, coke, whatever. That voice is Valium, which I'm glad you mentioned. Um, people will. They'll, they'll try and they'll look you in your eyes and promise you they're going to do it. And they sometimes relapse. But I think it's yeah. having that love and compassion to be around them. You're not the first person who's relapsed. And just keep trying. And I think what Paul rightly said as well, and I'm so happy you mentioned about the times that you did relapse. And the victory is that you haven't done it in 16 years. You, It's got to be... As much as I want Paul to stop using heroin, it's when Paul is ready to accept the change. And it is strength to ask for help. It's not a weakness to ask for help. It's a courage to accept the help. Yeah. And the, th the thing is, as well, is that the help, the help is out there. Um, but there's, just, there's not just one way. There's not just one way to, to break an addiction, you know? And I think that what, what happens amongst the addicts is that they put so much pressure on themselves because no one wants to be an addict. You know, I, and I, I totally understand that society doesn't see that. Society sees addicts hanging around the street, being a nuisance, stealing, robbing, um, robbing people at knife point for money for their fix. That's what society sees. But the truth is that not all addicts are like that. And and also the truth is that, you know, the way of breaking addiction is not just what there's not just one way. And many addicts will try something to break their addiction and fail. And then beat themselves up for failing which then drives them into a further depression. 
and that 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 can be detrimental to your health, of course. And it, that becomes something that is a regular occurrence. Every time an addict is trying to kick the habit, to better themselves, to pull away from a drug, um, and for whatever reason they relapse, they feel like a failure. They beat themselves up. Oh, I promised my parents and I promised all my family I'd stop, and now I look like an idiot, and I just feel like rubbish now, but I'm just giving up now. And, you know, and they have that mental attitude that that's going to end up having them relapsing. But it's important to to say, and it's important to mention that there's not just one way to break an addiction. There are many ways. And that's what I'm about, is about sharing my knowledge of breaking addiction. Um, you know, the way that i done it, um, I, I broke my back and crushed my spine. And I was medically discharged from the Scots Guards in 2015. I was then put back onto opiate medication. The doctors, all these white coats, told me that I'm on tablets for the rest of my life. I became addicted to these opiate medications, your cocodamols, your tramadols, and the hydrocodines and stuff. And I, you know, I started abusing them again. And then... Eight months ago, I broke that addiction again. I broke it. The reason that I was able to break, break it, Kev, was when I was writing my book, I was writing about how I broke my heroin addiction. And I remember sitting writing how I broke my heroin addiction. And I remember a light bulb went on in my head um, whilst I was writing the book that made me question myself where I'm at right now, you know, eight months ago. And I was sitting there and I was in a lot of pain in my back. I was swallowing all these tablets like they were Smarties. I was smoking a power of cannabis um, to combat the pain, or so I thought. You know, and then I realised, wait a minute, what am I doing? Like, let's try and see what my back is like without all these tablets and without the cannabis. So I I broke that addiction. Um and I've been eight months drug free now. You know, how is your back? And how is your back now? My back's just the same. It's it's crazy. It's a crazy feeling, Kev, honestly. Initially I was angry. I was so, so angry at the doctors. Because they put me on these tablets and I I felt like I didn't have an option. It crushed my spirit and crushed my soul that I'd been put on these tablets and there was no way off of them because my back, my spine's crushed. So these, these doctors and specialists have said, Paul, unfortunately, pal, you're just going to have to live with it. You're going to be on these tablets for the rest of your life. You have to accept it. And I believed them. And I got you do, went, don't went, you? You believe the doctors? You think you're a very educated man, and you're looking out for me. Yep, and I, I accepted it, Kevin. That was the biggest mistake that I've made since my since my accident was that I accepted it. And whilst I was still serving in the army and doing my rehabilitation after my accident, um, I got put on gabapentin. 
pre-Gabalin, amitriptyline, nortriptyline, and I became suicidal on these medications. So when I went back to the military doctor, she took me off the gabapentins and the pre-Gabalins and stuff um, because we were looking for a drug that was non-opiate. Because they were concerned about my heroin addiction before, rightly so, they said that they're concerned to have me on an opiate medication. But these other tablets were making me suicidal. I was crying all the time. And, um, you know, I was still a soldier. And it was, and I was embarrassed to let the other men in the barracks see me crying. So I used to sit in the car and hide. And I didn't know what was wrong. So I went back and, and spoke to the doctor and told her. And she said, right, Paul, that's no good. You're coming off them straight away. And we're going to put you back on opiate. I know you don't want to go back on your opiate medication, but unfortunately, there isn't an alternative um, right now. So I was like, that was fine. But being back on those tablets, um, becoming a drug addict again, you know, and it was through no fault of my own. I, I wasn't driving the car. I never done anything wrong. Uh, I never made any mistakes. I was just sitting a passenger in a car that crashed. And, you know, and that was it. But to be end up being a drug addict again, it was so, so horrible. But then when I got medically discharged and I got sent home to Scotland, I was forgotten. And that was... I don't think it was so hard to take at the time because I was taking so many drugs. I didn't really think about it. Like, you know, the army have forgotten about me. Now, no one's, no one's phoning to check up on me. No one's coming to visit me. Um, no one's bothered about how I'm getting on. It didn't bother me because I was on all these tablets. I was a zombie on all, all these medications. Um, but now when I look back, when I look back at my life back then, I don't know what good it would have done for the welfare officer to to visit me. I think they probably would have seen that, that the drugs had started to take over my life. The addiction had started to take over my life again. And maybe they could have done more to help um, try, and, try and combat that. Um, but luckily... You know, I already had the tools to, to break the heroin addiction. So well, that's what um, I was going to say. Because you've done it in reverse and you know how it feels to be strong on heroin, you had that as um, a thing of reference saying, if I carry on with this, I'm going to be where I was. But if that was your first time of being on opiates and then you're having to take two tablets where you take one and three and you're thinking, well, I've heard. Heroin's the next answer. So you, that, it could have been a deal breaker for you, couldn't it? Definitely, definitely. And that the pro, that's the problem with these with these prescription medications, right? And this is another thing that that society does not understand, um, is that when you take heroin, it has a it has a physical and a mental effect on your body, and when you take enough of these prescription medications, it's very similar, dangerously close. I could take enough, I could take an amount of codeine um, or a tramadol 
that would make me feel very similar to how I would feel when I was on heroin. And I don't know. Um, it just doesn't seem. To, it doesn't seem to be common knowledge. But I could tell you now, Kev, pharmaceutical companies will hate me um, for for what I have to say about it. I know they will. But I feel in my life for what for what I've been through, I think I deserve to be able to. Um, I need to be able to speak about it openly to try and help people who are on these medications that are given to them by the doctor. And and again, there's alternatives. There is alternatives to help with pain. You've got CBD oils. You've got these um, wonder drugs that are natural that are a better alternative than pumping your body full of man-made chemicals that are, um, you know, very, very close and very similar to the feeling that you get from heroin. And, um, you know, my back, um, my back, I'm in pain every day. And when I was on my all my tablets, you know, I was on eight, eight strong tramadols a day. Um, and cannabis. When I was taking all these drugs, my back was still sore. Right, the the pain doesn't go away. My spine's crushed, and there's no amount of tablets that's going to, um, there's not going to be a miracle cure. Short of me getting morphine, IV morphine every day, I'm going to have to suffer this pain for the rest of my life. That's just the way that it is. But what I realised when I came off these tablets, I tapered myself off um, very slowly over the space of a couple of weeks, and stopped the cannabis. And my back was no worse. It wasn't any better and it wasn't any worse. And that's when I said earlier about being angry. I was angry that I hadn't done it sooner. Then I quickly realised that by being angry, that serves no purpose for doing anything positive in my life. So, you know, I decided to sort of disregard that, say that it is what it is, it's life. Get on we've it. got the right. We've got the right to be angry. But it's how long we stay angry. Like if you in a car accident or you get hit by a car, you're allowed to feel angry at the person who's run you over. But where does that anger go? It goes into the universe. You blame God. You blame whatever. But it's not making life any better. Is it anger and blame? You've got to accept it and think about how you're going to deal with it. Get around it. Move on from it. Own the situation and then try and build from it. Yeah, I think I think being angry is human nature. Yeah, of course, right everybody on. does. But like you said there, um, that ang that anger only hurts you. Um, you know the person who the person who you're angry at, they're not going to be affected the same way that you're going to be affected by staying angry. Um, so as hard as it is. You know, because we are all human. Um, everybody does get angry. It is learning. It is learning to switch that anger off. Um, you know, and, and and acknowledging that it's okay to get angry. You know, it's it's okay to get angry. It's what you do with the anger. You can use it. You can use the anger in a in a positive way. Um, and again, that's just. Something that that a lot of people don't do, 
Um, maybe a lot of people don't realise that it's possible to be able to use such an, you know, such an emotion as anger to use it in a positive way. Um, but you certainly can, and it doesn't, you know, for me, for me being angry serves me or my family no purpose. Um, so I just decided to be very happy that I had stopped on my medication and then my back wasn't any worse than what it was. And I felt amazing. Absolutely Chris, amazing. Quick, a quick question. You know, when you first come off the legal stuff, yeah. you still get, we get inside effects. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, just so someone else who's doing it, they can be aware of what you went through and it's natural. They will feel the same. Yeah. So the when I, I tapered off, I tapered off my medications very slowly. So for the first for the first few days, you don't notice anything because you're still taking, you know, for instance, well, no, for instance, I was on eight tablets, eight tablets a day. When I decided when I was writing this book that I'm going to try and come off all these tablets, I went, very quickly went to six tablets a day. My body never noticed any different you know there wasn't there was no withdrawals no side effects because um i was still on such a large amount of tablets so then from six i went to five um then when i got down to four which is as that's as few as i'd been on for that whole time um in any one day i'd never taken any less than four before i started to snap my tablets in two um and I went from four to three and a half. And then as I was starting to come down the lower, at the lower doses, I started to feel rubbish. I felt a little bit anxious. I was probably anxious about the pain in my back getting worse, which fortunately it never. But I had these whole anxieties um, that made me a little bit nervous about, you know, Am I going to be able to do it? Um, but I soon realised that the, the physical side, um, the, the physical side of the addiction was relatively easy. And I don't, I don't say that very, um, I don't want to insult anyone by saying that. Um, but I tapered off. The physical symptoms and the physical side of the addiction that I was breaking was easy in comparison to the mental side of the addiction. Um, I I thought about my tablets every single minute of every single day. And for, that's addiction, isn't it, when you like that? For, yeah, and that went on for um, three months. So that was something that was very very difficult and it was it was hard to explain and in my support group that I have on Facebook I was trying to explain it to, to all these addicts that are in my group but um, it was it's a, it's a mental thing that whenever the, the physical side like I said was relatively easy my back pain wasn't any, any worse so I didn't have that concern what the concern was that I had was that when I became bored and locked down, I'm stuck in this house 
in the same four walls for eight months. Um, and I, I had tablets in the house that I knew would cure my boredom. If I took, if I knew if I, at that moment, you know, after being clean of my, of my prescription medications for a week or two weeks, I knew that if I went and took eight tramadol that day, you know, that I would, I wouldn't be bored anymore. Um, because that's the, you know, that's the benefit, um, of taking stupid amounts of drugs is that you're not bored. So I, I remember sitting for long periods of time in my living room thinking, constantly thinking, how good would it be just to go and have a few tablets, just not to be bored for a couple of hours, you know? And I never, um, but that's it's, it's a, that's a, that's the most difficult part of the addiction to break is those initial months after getting off and getting clean physically, um, you know, because your body will get better. Your body's a wonderful thing. You know, once you, your appetite will pick up, your mood will get better. There's loads of positive things that will happen once you break the physical addiction. But mentally is where you really need to work on yourself. You need to be aware of how difficult it is going to be. But be aware that it's possible. And if you want to change your life enough, it's there for the taking. You just have to stay strong and ask for help when the time comes where you are lonely, you're bored, you're angry, all these negative emotions, whenever any of these pop their ugly heads up in your in your head, ask for help. And help doesn't have to come in the way of a rehab centre. It doesn't have to come in the way of an alternative drug. Sometimes help just has to come through talking to one of your friends on the phone for half an hour. Well, we always say on the Black Country Blokes is you've got to find your medicine. Yeah. And I, and and there's, there's so many different there's so many different ways that, that um I combated it, you know, and I and I, I share um I share that with everyone. So I write as a way of combating that, that addiction, that that need or that feeling that I want to take tablets, I want to take my med these prescription medications. When I feel like that, pick up a pen, pick up a bit of paper, draw some pictures, um, write down how I feel. If I'm feeling like crap, I'll write down exactly how I feel. I write down why I feel rubbish. Um, if I'm angry, I write down why I feel angry. I, I rip that bit of paper up and put it in the bin when I feel better. It doesn't matter. It just serves a purpose to get it out of my head. Um, you know, but it can be anything. You know, it can be um, playing chess, boxing, running. Um, there's there's millions of positive things that you can do just for that moment of weakness that you're having that you're thinking about relapsing. When, you, when you're thinking about that, you, if, if you reach out um, and do something positive for that short period of time, that will serve you well for the coming months and it will ensure that you break the addiction and you keep the addiction broken because, you know, I'm not perfect. I still get angry on occasions. I still feel sad on occasions. 
And when I feel like that, I know what I need to do to be able to combat it, which is um, seek help. And because of lockdown, I can't go and see my friends. I can't go and see my family. My wife's at her work all day, you know, the bairns at college all day. I'm sitting in the house on my own. So I I, I know that I have what I have to find something that I can do on my own to combat it. And if it's something as simple as picking up a bit of pen, a, a bit of paper and a pen, and start and writing or drawing a picture, it's just a distraction technique. It's all that, like, it's all that's needed just to take your mind off it. And I think that's what's been so odd this last however many months, nine, ten months, where we haven't just been able to nip to the gym, go and see your mom, go and t- go. You know, and it's we've seemed to have had all them fun things taken away. And I think that's when um, what's that old saying? The devil wa- the devil makes work of idle hands. When you're bored, that's when you do start having a few more fags, a few more cans, a few more bags of whatever, a few tablets, because we're in lockdown, it doesn't matter. I'll deal with the reality when we get to the real world. But by that stage, the habit's created, isn't it? See, the lockdown, Kev, honestly, are the government no aware how difficult it is for people that were already suffering with mental health issues, right? Just disregard the people that have got them now that never had them, right, for a second. Let's just concentrate on the people that were depressed prior. Like, when, th- when I think to myself now how how much, um, how much more difficult their lives are now, it really does sadden me. And then it also saddens me that these people that use the gym, they go boxing every day. Um, you know, for me, I used boxing as a, an anger management. I was an angry man. I was angry at the world. I was angry at myself. I was angry at complete strangers in the street for no reason. I'd fly off the handle. And before you know it, I'm effing and seeing back at someone who I don't even know because he never held the door for me. Stupid, trivial things. Um, but when I started boxing, it released these endorphins and it just made me feel amazing. And so i done it every day because I knew that how, how, how good it made me feel. You shut the boxing gyms all across the, all across the country. Let's just shut them. Let's not have any thoughts for these, know these people that are um, professional boxers. They get paid to go to the gym. We're not talking about these people. We're talking about the amateur boxers, the, the, the boxers, the young kids who um, are keeping themselves off the street corner, out of the gangs, by going to a boxing gym every night and learning discipline and learning respect, right? But no, let's just disregard that. Let's just shut all the gyms anyway. And we'll just disregard all the boxing gyms and all the, all the martial arts clubs. Just shut everything. But it's because the, politician, the politicians don't actually walk into an amateur boxing gym and it's, oh, you're teaching young people how to fight. No, I'm encouraging them not to fight. I want them to box and teach them those large skills of we're animals, we want to hit something, we want to let off the steam, but we don't want to go out being hooligans. So we're trying to give those, those rogues and scallies and buggers a bit of light, a bit of love, because a lot of the people who come in to so many clubs around the country, the world, we are their families. 
And when the family yeah. has to shut the door on them, they're going to find the other, fa- the other families on the streets doing street yes. life. Yeah. And that's what, that's what lockdowns cause. Um, you know, that I don't think back in March anybody could have anticipated that come Christmas time, we're still going to be locked in the house like we are. Um, but the reality is, is that we have been, and the amount, uh, the amount of young kids now who will be running in the street gangs and may not ever find their way back into a boxing gym because they you get find shot, a new role stabbed, model, don't you? You find a new role lo- model. You know, they're they're going to... You run with the crows, you get shot down with the crows. So, you know, there's a chance that these people are going to end up locked up. Young kids, 18-year-old. He was was at the gym every day. He was learning how to box. He was learning discipline, self-respect, respect respect for others. He was learning all these um, important um, traits that you should, should be learning as a young man. And... He no longer has that outlet. So then he goes hanging around with the people that he was trying to get away from from his estate. Because he's no option. He lives there. He sees them every day. Right? So he starts running around with them again and something something goes down. You're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Something happens and then he gets locked up. And then it's just like such a, a waste and such a shame that that's happened. Or it will, it will happen. There's no doubt in my mind it'll happen. Um, it's probably already happened, to be fair. It's just, I don't know. I don't know what the government are thinking. We're closing, we're closing, these, closing all these um, gyms and boxing clubs and martial art clubs. And it just, I don't know. I just hope that it doesn't continue for much longer because um, everybody's struggling. Mental health is... Mental health is on the rise. Suicide is on the rise. Um, and it's only going to get worse. With Christmas around the corner, when yeah. daddies can't put dinners on tables and presents under trees, we're going to see a massive boom with the poor blokes. But this Businesses is what... are going under. Um, you know, so then, again, you have these big people that were business owners. Um, their businesses have crumbled. Can you blame them for being depressed? Can you blame them for reaching for a bottle of whiskey? Can you blame them for reaching for some Valium to take away that pain? I don't blame them. I don't blame... I don't blame... I just... I feel so sorry for them that, you know, the business that they've worked so long in building has crumbled. They've been given no support. And potentially... They're going to end up an addict. But this is why it's been so wonderful, Paul, to get you on. Before I advertise next show, can you just tell everyone where to find your book, Heroin for Heroin to Hero? Yeah, so my book is on Amazon at the moment. I self-published on Amazon in March due to the COVID. Um, you know, publishers and stuff were closed, so I self-published on Amazon. It's there on ebook and paperback. All profits from my book go to homelessness in Scotland. 
Um, something that at the moment I have raised just over £3,000 to go and buy sleeping bags, hopefully military ones, um, to go out and help the people in Scotland because it's absolutely freezing right now. But yeah, my book's on Amazon. Um, so I'd appreciate it if anybody um, does want to hear my story. Also know that when you do buy the book, it is going, for a, it is going to a great cause as well. I know Lee Cadman's ready to me. It's such a shame we couldn't come on today. But Lee's doing all the digital work for us. Please, Pooley. But he said it's an absolutely brilliant read. Um, so on Thursday, guys, we're doing a bit lighter-hearted. It's first for a thoughtful Thursday, and we're going to go very black country on this one. We're going to be laughing about if the black country had our very own Love Island, would we call it bonking on the, bonking on the barge, separating wenches from the whammals, and blokes from the Nanas. So be a part of just something silly, light-hearted, or reminding ourselves to have a bloody good laugh now and then. And be proud, as Paul's proud of being a Scotsman, we're proud of being from the black country. Be proud of where you're from. But Paul, I'm going to ask you, like I've asked everyone else, have you got any quotes or sayings that have got you through life? I think in recent, in recent years, I think my fav- my favourite quote that I use all the time um, is all that's needed for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. Well, thank you once again, brother, for coming on. So thank guys, you, Kev. No, thank you. So, guys, until we see each other next time, take care of yourselves and each other. ta ra bit. And that's a wrap for another show. But if there are any comments or messages that you'd like us to read out for our next podcast, please be in touch. There are also lots of different organisations at the bottom of this page and hopefully they can help you or someone you care about. Please share this to spread the word. Until we talk next time, ta-ra-ra-bit. Listen, listen, listen.